0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 222 with Rich Jones and Marcus Garrett. Rich and Marcus are talking about making the most out of advancement career opportunities and making the most of dollars that can come from them. So you'll learn one, pro tips for getting hired for your dream job, two, the critical thing to do before sealing the deal on your new job, and three, why 90% of people become stagnant in their career by 45 and how to not be one of them. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, that's on over at com slash ep222. Now, here is Rich and Marcus's stories. Rich Jones, along with Marcus Garrett, co host Paychecks and Balances, a fun, formative podcast covering work and money for millennials. They leverage their experience to provide entertaining insights and helpful tips on money management, professional growth, and other topics relevant to 20 and 30-somethings trying to get ahead. So huge thanks to Rich and Marcus. I had a whole lot of fun meeting them over at Podcast Movement in California, and if we're having too much fun bantering, please feel free to skip to the middle of the episode because they have some tips you don't want to miss. And if you're impatient for just the hard-hitting insights, well, you know, skip ahead a little bit because they're coming, trust me, and you don't want to miss what they have to say. So here are Rich and Marcus. Rich and Marcus, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
1: Thanks for having us, man. Yes, sir. Appreciate it.
0: Now, I understand. Now, Rich, is it you who was a part of a pilot for a relationship reality show?
1: Can you tell us the tale? Yeah. So I was at some club event, met somebody, gave me a business card, then met them later at a very seedy location. Oh, I, mean, I <laughs> guess it wasn't really... <laughs> I, I got... That actually sounds really bad, especially with this <laughs> happening in uh, in New York City. Um, but I ended up meeting with someone who was a, a producer. They said they were fil- filming a reality show. They knew that I was a relationship blogger at the time. And they said, hey, we're shooting a pilot. And so I'm like, cool, reality show. That's better than my day job. At least it was at the time. And uh, no offense to the company that I was working for at, at that point in my career. But what it turned out to be was this this crazy experience where they had people shooting those, those confessionals and they were trying to basically mold me to be the relationship blogger of the show. (laughs) And so when I would talk about my day job, they'd be like, cut, no, don't mention your day job. That's not cool. Talk about the relationship blogging. And then I'd be super friendly and and like, you know what? We need more edge. And I'm like, but I'm not mean. (laughs) And then (laughs) it was, it was crazy. And then ultimately when they got everybody in a room together for what was supposed to be the pilot episode, it was basically around this table at a restaurant and they just fed us drinks. So that aspect of what you see on reality shows, there is some truth to that. And I don't think I ever saw this show go on air. I believe for the two set, the uh, two sessions I was there recording for that people walked off the set. I didn't get invited back after the second go around. So yeah, that was my experience. It was crazy all around, man. That is crazy.
0: That's crazy. Well, a good story, a good icebreaker. And Marcus, uh, we're not going to leave you out. Can you tell us, you have a cool tale in which you were at one point, $30,000 in debt, and now no more. How'd that go down?
2: You know, to be fair, I feel like I should have told my story first, because I feel like Rich raised the bar a little bit high here. (laughs) Uh, So I don't have a reality story, really, (laughs) as, as far as mine goes. I think the people, the story that people like the most is... I actually graduated school with about nine thousand dollars in debt, um, which was, in hindsight, barely responsible. And I reached out to a consolidation loan company, which I'm not even sure is still around. They probably you know got arrested for fraudulent practices with all that that went down mm-hmm. in around the 2005 timeframe, and. They sent me a consolidation loan, which I didn't even know existed. I think I went with the one with the prettiest um, like marketing on the front. I'm like, yeah, this looks good. Sign up for a consolidation loan. Mm -hmm. And they sent me a check for, I believe, $10,000. And I was like, ball out. Like, You send a 22-year-old a blank (laughs) check. For some reason in my head, and this is the advice I give people now, is to direct a positive. But when it came... I thought they would pay off my creditors. When it came to me like in the form of a check and I signed my name on it, mind you, all they knew about me is that I was unable to spend $9,000 already. So why they thought I could spend $10,000 responsibly, to this day, I still don't know. And then I just went wild. So long story short, over the course of one weekend, I went from $9,000 and $26,000 in debt. One weekend, 9000 yeah. to 26000 okay seventy two hours so a little bit of the math behind that, uh, so I have the nine thousand dollars originally, which i didn 't pay off only it was three it cost three cards, only paid off one. I basically just went on a shopping spree. I had a girlfriend on the time, so she helped me you know she was an enabler, you know she was loyal to be clear, uh, so we both were spenders, and I talk a lo- a lot now about the spending personality and the saving personality, so we were enablers, we were both spenders, so we went out and we spent. We drink a lot of alcohol. I start to lose track of what took place around this (laughs) point uh, for my libation drinkers out there. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But when I woke up, I actually still hadn't spent it all. So I was like, I got a great idea. I'll buy a car with rims. And so I put a down payment uh, on a car and I didn't even negotiate it. I was just like that one. (laughs) <laughs> and even the guy was like, uh, you know, do you want to talk about let, let's go back and talk to my manager? I was like, no, nah, don't worry about it. I got <laughs> cash in my hand. Just give me the one with the rims. And so, yeah, uh, by the time I came down from my blank check high and in my head, for some reason, I just thought this was all free money. Like when I had that minimum payment, I think it created this reality where I'd always been able to make minimum payments. So it didn't, it really didn't register how big of a deal it was. And it would be in the book is dead free or die trying how I buried myself in over $30,000 in debt and dug my way out by age 30 is it took 10 years approximately to pay off that weekend. So in Mm -hmm. 72 hours, I basically buried myself for the next 10 years of my life.
0: But you had the rims, though. It was worth it, right, dude? (laughs) (laughs) Yo, I love that car. Rich knows I
2: have an emotional attachment to it. I had to let it go recently. I only let it go in 2016. But I I drove that car and I put 180,000 miles on that car. So I got every dollar out of that vehicle, I feel like. I actually still miss it. <laughs> it was a Toyota Camry for my Camry drivers out there. Loyal. I'm still loyal to the Toyota Camry, although I moved on to a an American made vehicle. Uh but yes, I, I love that car and I still my parents are probably still upset with me because in all this time, it is the only car I've never wrecked. I totaled every car I've ever gotten my hold my hands on until that one.
0: Hmm. Well well this is these are good tales, good tales. And that's why it's so fun to listen to you guys on your show, Paychecks and Balances. And it really does feel like, you know, no one's lecturing at you like, this is what you should do with your money, but rather you're just talking to some folks who've learned some things and are sharing those learnings and getting input from other folks. So that's kind of my take as a listener, but how about we get your take on it? What's your show, Paychecks and Balances all about?
2: Uh, yeah, I'll again well, let Rich Rich open up. He always has the the better opening as far as the show because he he came up with the name. So go ahead, Rich.
1: Is basically personal finance and career advice for millennials. And and like you were saying, Pete, uh, it's there's really none of the pretentious or looking down or you need to be doing this or I'm an expert because I have all of these letters after my name and. Initially, when I was looking around for podcasts, that talked about career advice or professional development or personal finance. A lot of the stuff that I saw out there or heard out there, rather, since it's a podcast was boring or it gave me that feeling where somebody was lecturing me. And that's not what I find people in this millennial generation tend to like. And I also didn't like that approach. So I remember going to Marcus and saying, hey, you got out of $30,000 of debt. I've been making my way up the corporate ranks. We've both been making our way up the corporate ranks. How about we start a podcast that hits both work and money and we, and we uh, give a fun spin to it. And it's really started to take off when we created the paychecks and balances podcast, which a lot of people don't know is actually our second show.
0: Mm -hmm. What was the name of the first show?
1: The first podcast. (laughs) Dramatic fall. <laughs> I, I realized I talked myself into that one. I was like, Well, here we go. So, so the first podcast was called Two Guys, One Show. And there there really wasn't much reason to the name other than it was something that we could both chuckle at and laugh at. And there was that whole hidden meaning behind it that looking back, I'm like, probably not the mm-hmm. best name for a podcast that's supposed to hit on personal finance Still and career advice. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, looking back, we probably should have called it NSFW, but I'm sure there's probably a podcast with that name. Living on the edge. I mean,
2: you know, sometimes I think it's a lesson learned that. I really can't say that comes with youth, although we I guess we were younger millennials at that time. We're like, this is just something cool to do. So we just hey, we went with it. And I think we learned. Actually, I know we learned a lot from that episode. And mm-hmm. I think ba- people benefit on paychecks and balances because of all the mistakes and lessons learned that we actually had on Two Guys at One Show. So uh, politically, slightly incorrect name or not, we did get the, the appropriate outcome. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to spin it.
0: I'm trying to spin it. Oh no! I'm right with you when it comes to the learnings. You know, I had a previous podcast called the Student Leadership Podcast, and I didn't really know what I was doing. But I was at the time most of my revenue was from speaking on college campuses about leadership and student organizations and such. And I thought, well, that's cool. I'll, I'll do podcasting's cool. I'll, I'll do that. But then I was always kind of fuzzy, you know, in terms of who is this for? Is it for a higher ed professional, or is it for a student, or is it for both, or it depends on which episode? And so was kind of always fuzzy, that was us, yeah, <laughs> so then, when you get that learning, like, okay, this is specifically for this audience who have these sets of issues and questions and things on their their mind, well, suddenly, you get some real momentum building that way,
1: definitely, yeah, yeah, and that's what we found, especially with um paychecks, because a lot of the listeners, of course, they're millennials twenty five to thirty four It's actually expanding to where it's now like twenty five to forty four. And when we don't shout out Generation X, we definitely hear about it on the podcast. But with um, this show, a lot of it is really just meeting people where they are, you know, and then reflecting on the experiences that we've had and making fun of ourselves, like the way Marcus talks about getting into debt. I think we have both talked about how we've poorly negotiated in the past and then had a a company say, yes, we'll take that. And they bring us on board and we're like, wait, that's it. No going back and forth. You said yes too fast. Should I have asked for more? And so we have all of those conversations where we uh, talk about past mistakes. But the other thing I was thinking about with this being our second podcast and Pete, I believe this being your second as well, is that people don't realize the amount of time that it takes. And it, it goes into that whole overnight success thing that we hear about where it's like, man, you know, this show took off in a year and a half. And it's like, yeah, this show. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Maybe taken off
1: within a year and a half, but you don't know that there was a whole three years, 150 episodes, over a thousand hours that came before this. And that's the amount of time it took us to really figure this all out. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And now I
0: want to hear about some of the things you figured out. I mean, so you also host some guests and spend a lot of time, you know, doing research when you maybe get a little bit stumped from a listener question, like, Ooh, I, don't, I don't think I actually know the answer yet. Let me learn some stuff in a hurry. So I'd like to hear, you know, what have been some of the most maybe striking, mind-blowing insights, lesson learned that were maybe even counterintuitive at times, like you picked up some nuggets that just made a world of difference for you and listeners.
2: I think for me, and even now, and it, it's been a little bit easier because I just did a, um, you know, international podcast day where I had to actually speak on this topic. It's still humbling for me for people to reach out, as Rich mentioned, um, that we I guess we're talking to our younger selves, but they are that age, if that makes sense. So for mm-hmm. a 25 year old to reach out and be like, man, I never looked at personal finance in this way. I never would have considered my career and the trajectory it would have or the impact it would have in 10 years. And I just wish I had a vehicle or a medium of which podcasting is where someone could have talked to me and equally important that I would have listened. So mm-hmm. a lot of people talk to me, <laughs> but I ignored all of the above. So There's that component, but that's also not wholly accurate because I actually learned a lot going through, now we're on like 67 episodes in, but especially in those early ones, I look at those who, what is the saying, those who can't teach. So I'm like, how do I teach someone this? And it was a wholly different exercise than just going through the life experience. Like I never planned to write a book. So it's almost insane to me now when people are like, man, I read your book and I learned this. I'm like that's still crazy to me because when you're going through these experiences it's like i i'm not i'm not going through this experience to write a book ten years from now i 'm going through this horrible experience well actually i'm not going It was actually really fun mm. <laughs> It just had repercussions that made my life horrible uh, down the line but I wasn't going through it like, man, I'm going to write this book. And then one day, 10 years from now, a 25-year-old or a 23-year-old or a college student is going to write in and tell me how I've changed their finances or how they approach life. And they are now more responsible because of something I said. That's just not... It's like that VH1 behind the music. It never really made sense. But now when people are talking to me about it, I'm like, okay, I get that. I didn't see myself that way. I still don't see myself that way. Um, One thing I was going to say that we did learn from the show the first uh, podcast is to be comfortable with knowing what we were talking about. For months, I think we were scared to talk about these topics because mm-hmm. we didn't think anyone would listen. So we talked about every topic under Sun, Beyonce. We, if we were still doing it, we probably would have eventually been talking about Cardi B because we're like, oh, that's cool. That's hip. That's what the kids are doing. But we're as a junior millennial called us recently senior millennials. Uh, I, I think we're right. trying to, yeah, we're trying to rebrand it now and make it exennials, whatever. You know, millennials are like refusing to accept that they are aging, but we're, you know, mid to, I think it extends to 34, 35 now. Like we're buying homes, having kids and family, and we're, yet I feel like some of us are still trying to hold on to that. Man, I'm still this title of millennial. I'm like, And you're 34. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you know, uh, like Ryu said in Street Fighter, like, go home and be a family man. Although I could make that same uh, comment to myself.
1: Uh (laughs) I think for myself and especially from talking to guests is just realizing the number of paths to success that are out there. And of course, everyone's vision of what or everyone's definition of what success looks like is going to be different. But with each guest, there's really not much in common except that they all had this spaghetti squiggly line path to wherever they were or wherever they are today whether they started as a teacher or they were doing some type of abroad program or they were a hip hop blogger and then next thing you know they're a personal finance expert and the other thing with that is the importance of consistency and and we talk about that. We're saying, you know, we've been doing this for three or four years. And just and just because we've been doing it for three or four years doesn't mean that we've been consistent. But I think that we have, and especially in releasing an episode almost every week, with the exception of weeks where I'm traveling or he's out of town, or it's you know Thanksgiving, because we're not trying to record episodes over Thanksgiving or, or or over other holidays where we're chilling with family or women or whoever it is that we're with. But that also applies on the career front, too, man, because when you think about it, for those people who rise up the ranks, those people didn't just come out of nowhere. They've probably been working at whatever it is that they consider their craft for a very long time. And, mm-hmm. and you hear that from our guest where they've been doing it for five, six, seven. You know, we've had people who've been doing it you know, 10, 15 years. We had a guest on recently who was a, a childhood actor and a and a voice actor for TV commercials. And now he he teaches people how to invest in in stock. And that's something that you build over the course of years. And I think what happens with a lot of folks, especially in the in the millennial generation, is they get so focused on that want it now. And and I'm still like that sometimes too, where I'm like, man, how come we can't be rich and wealthy and, and have these chains and everything else already? But at the same time, being realistic that like, yeah, yo. <laughs> Everyone that we look to as a model of success, this has taken them a really long time with them staying really focused on what it is that they're doing.
0: Mm hmm. I would like to hear a little bit about sort of your take when it comes to the rise for professionals, you know, in your experience, you know, doing some hiring, doing some HR recruiting, manager stuff. What are some of the top perspectives that you'd offer to professionals? I'd say first looking to get a given job and secondly, looking to get promoted within that organization.
1: Yeah, I think for people looking to get a job, number one thing is doing your research and and you might be surprised. Maybe you won't be at how little research some people do, where there'll be times where I do an initial call with someone and I ask them why they apply to the company and they'll say, I found it on Indeed. And it's like, bruh, sis, ma'am, come on. And even in terms of whatever the specific role it is that that you're looking to do, taking advantage of a tool like LinkedIn, and, and I've talked on the podcast before how I've used LinkedIn as my career consultant. And I think that, 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 I think that that's been helpful to me. And so I'll say a little bit about what that means. And so when I was figuring out what I wanted wanted to do, it was like 2008. I was working at a staffing agency at the time. I was already thinking about what my next move was going to be. And and, and I had an idea of what my career path would look like, but how I was going to get there, how I was going to up, my resume in such a way that I would get calls for more than sales jobs, the first thing I did was go look up people who had the job title that I wanted next. Mm-hmm. And I took a look at their profile to, to get a sense of what were the skills, the experiences, the places that they worked at. And that helped me to tweak my own profile to make it more, more attractive so that if so that if a hiring manager did look at my resume or if a recruiter did look at my resume, they could see the path that I wanted to go. And they would see a lot of the terminology that they were probably already looking for based off of whatever requirements they were given by the hiring manager. And the other thing with that, what I see a lot of people do is they'll have a very nicely tailored resume. But when I cross-reference their LinkedIn profile, it tells a completely different story. And so I always encourage people that yes, if you're it's okay to want to explore different avenues, but those avenues should probably have some things in common because it's super confusing when someone looks at your resume, goes to your LinkedIn profile, and those two things don't match. And then it becomes okay, is this person really telling the truth? And then once you create that doubt, the hiring manager or the recruiter is much more likely to move on to whoever the next candidate is in the process or in the pipeline. Understood. Thank you. Yeah. And I guess uh I'm going to make
2: my really dramatic statement and then I'll start with my easier one to, you know, warm the crowd up. Mm -hmm. And to Richard's point, I would say to know your resume. So it's actually a best practice to tailor the resume to the job description. But don't do it so well that then you get in the interview and I'm like, huh, tell me about and you're like, what can I can I see that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I shouldn't have to hand your resume back to you. So if you are going to tailor it, be sure that you can speak to it. But the one advice, especially people coming out of school, but I would share with anyone now, and I didn't even know this existed. We actually found it um, when we transitioned to paychecks and balances. They did a study that found the difference between $5,000 in your career negotiation or lack thereof can cost you over 600000 during the course of your career. And yes, I'm going to repeat that because it is very important. Specifically, they found starting at 55000 as opposed to... To fifty thousand could yield an additional six hundred and thirty thousand over the course of your career, like in compensation, in
0: compensation
2: yes. that you earn. Yeah, simply not taking, and I'd say five minutes. Five minutes to say, hey, um, you you offered me fifty thousand. Is it possible to do fifty five thousand? Could lose you over a half million dollars in compensation. Like I've said this statistic, I'll probably repeat it more again, but it still blows my mind.
0: And so is that just because, you know, if raises are done by a few percentage points against the previous compensation each year, that's how it kind of gets huge or what explains that difference? Well, it's an excellent question. I
2: think the analysis they use, and I'll give it to you for your show notes for folks who want to read it for themselves, is an estimate of about a 2% raise over time. But there was another article that went viral recently, although it was written in 2014 and it says, employees who stay in companies longer than two years get paid 50% less. And so that's why, because typically your salary is going to be based, and also your raise, is going to be based on your current salary. So if you stay in a company and you're not competing with the market rate anymore, you inherently start to stagnate within the own organization. And one thing that they found is, and I'd say this is accurate for a lot of organizations, but the ones that they study they're not equipped to give you raises aligned with the market. So in these examples, what they found is that people who go into the market, and I say the market is literally, as Rich mentioned, you go into LinkedIn and you start applying for jobs. Those individuals were seeing 20 to 50% raises. The people in the exact same companies were only seeing 2 to 5% annual increases. Mm-hmm. I mean, it... You know, it's it's not basic math, but you can see how that's such a significant difference. That's up to 48% difference.
0: That is huge. And so the idea there is it's almost just like the mindset of the management. It's like, okay, existing employees, you give them a modest raise each year because that's just sort of what you do versus new hires. Okay, well, we got to pay what we got to pay to get them in. So (laughs) what's the market say we got to pay?
2: Yeah. The example I use, and I just went through this recently, is it's like your apartment. So it's cheaper to keep you. And they know that. So you're already there. And I I just
0: moved recently. I literally moved this weekend within the same complex. You know, I'm now a landlord as of days ago. (laughs) So I am riveted at what you're saying.
2: (laughs) So in this exact scenario, they sent me, I actually had to go ask. So we'll walk through this. So the story was, okay, I wanted to move to the third floor. When I originally moved into this complex and don't worry, folks, I'm going to tie all this together back to your career. You're like, what is he doing? He's talking about moving. I don't have to move. I got a home. This is all going to wrap up very nicely with a bow. I told them I was interested in moving to the third floor. You know, 10 months went by. I had a 12 month lease. They're like, okay. Uh, in the 10th month, they were like, hey, if you move this week, we will give you five hundred dollars off your next month rent and we're going to raise your rent about seventy five dollars. I'm like, what? Seventy five dollars. And then they hit me with the, <laughs> the switcheroo or you can stay in the apartment you already don't want to stay in on the first floor and we'll raise your rent $76. So I go, let me get this straight. Mm-hmm. You're going to give me a $500 off to move because they know it's inconvenient. Mm-hmm. So basically they, they know you're going to stay because there is a cost of inconvenience and it's an unspoken cost. It's intangible. Like you can't put a price on the inconvenience of moving just in the same way that they can't put a cost on the inconvenience of you looking for another job, finding another job that another job might be across the state. It might be across the country. What is it impact on you, your family, your kids, your children, your wife, your dog, your cat. They know that. Mm-hmm. So they can <laughs> offer you 2%, but the person who is hungry and actively looking for work, you, they can offer them 30% because they're trying to lure them from the company they're already at across the country, <laughs> across the state job. They're in the inverse relationship. And another example I use, and we talk about this. all the way, and now that I realize that we haven't talked about it recently, Rich. It's like a relationship. And I, I, I when a job starts to starts to uh, court you, it's like an affair. They reach out behind the scenes. They're like, I, I, I was checking out your resume. and I, You know, it's really beautiful. As your, <laughs> as, your, as your job told you how beautiful your skill set is. Really, like, no, they, <laughs> they, they they don't even compliment me anymore. They're like, you know, we can offer you. Thirty percent raise. I'm like thirty. They just they just gave me two percent last year. Oh my gosh, this is. Let me get a conference room. Like it feels like you are negotiating an affair. But at the end of the day, and I'll I'll get a little bit of details about this uh, as we walk through it. I believe that you have to negotiate. In the best and good faith for yourself. And I think that's easier for millennials and frankly, exennials not to, and, and exes. I don't want to leave anybody out. I think that's easier for us to accept. But it used to be, and my mindset was, I'll go to this company and they'll just make me a fair and best offer. Mm-hmm. False. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag fail. They'll make you a fair offer, but their bias and loyalty is to the bottom line of the company. And so to wrap all this up in that pretty bow I talked about, if you take nothing else from anything I say here and you zoned out around that apartment search time, negotiate every salary you are offered. If they, whatever they offer you, come back with, I'd say at minimum 10%. And I've talked to hiring managers. I've talked to hiring recruiters. I had one guy stumble up to me in a bar over listening a conversation I was had. And he says he has 20% to work with. No matter what he offers, Mm. he has 20% to work with. And his compensation is based on how much of that 20% he keeps for himself. So mm-hmm. the companies say you can pay up to 120,000. So in his head, he knows if he can get someone to take 100,000, he just made 20,000. And it's just that simple. So while in a perfect idealistic world, we would all negotiate in best faith and then we would do, you know, on to others and the golden rule and yada, 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 that ain't how any of this works.
0: Well, that's so wild and that, you know, hiring managers at times, like, it's often maybe not even their money. They don't get a bonus for it, but they've right. got budget and it's available to be d- distributed if they ask, but candidates don't ask. And so it just doesn't happen. It's wild how it can be that easy. Like money's there if you speak up,
1: but most people don't. So never mind. Yeah. And it's crazy because people get they become afraid for whatever reason. And I think uh, from a recruiting perspective, I see this with people earlier in their career, but they get afraid that if they ask for something, the offer is going to be rescinded. I have never seen an offer rescinded because somebody countered. I'm not sure if you've seen mm-hmm. that in your experience with with people that you've consulted, but I've never seen, I mean, um, unless it's like, you know, can I get a loft and, and 10 other things or where I do see people get into a hole is where they say, if you give me X, I'll be ready to move forward with accepting this offer. You get them X, and then they ask for three more things. I've seen that backfire, right. but yeah. but to make one ask and say, hey, I'd be willing to move forward and accept this if you could if you could offer me X. I've never seen a company go, no way, this offer is <laughs> rescinded, <laughs> and and that's how some people treat it, e- even with their negotiation going into a even going into a uh, into a performance review conversation where the person knows that they're worth more, but they feel that if they make this ask that it's going to come across the wrong way. And so it's like, what are you working so hard for? What are you, why are you in there interviewing and studying and reading up and doing all of this information if it's not to get the amount or the value that you're worth and that you deem you're worth. And when you don't negotiate, I think that says something about you as well. Oh, that is
0: powerful, and you're right. I love that take. It's like the worst that you could fear is they say, "You know what? Never mind. You ungrateful wretch. <laughs> this job is gone. You say goodbye, you greedy little. I don't know. Whatever. There's like our, our worst fears. You say, "Hey, those fears never have come to fruition, and that you've ever seen. And I've never heard of it." That happening either. I think, I guess the worst case scenario is just sort of embarrassment. Someone asks for a raise and they say, you know, sorry, you know, actually these packages are pretty standardized across all of North America. And so this is sort of what it is. And that's it, you know, maybe you feel embarrassed for like one minute and then that's over. It's like the worst case scenario
1: there. Yeah. And you never have to wonder, you've asked a question. So you're not wondering, did I get the most I could get? You asked, and they said they said no. And of course, maybe they swindled you somehow or some way. But at least you put the question out there, and so you can move forward with whatever it is you need to focus on next. Mm, That's so good. Yeah, and I'm going to agree
2: with Rich. Uh, To date, now mind you, it may be that no one's you know asked for something so egregious that I had to rescind, but literally never, never. And I've done a number of negotiations. It has to be in the dozens, if not, and maybe I just don't want to age myself. It might be in the double a dozen, might probably twenty four or something like that, but at no point has everyone anyone asked for an amount so egregious. I was like, "No." I mean, and I rescind it, you know, I delete the email, put them on the block list. In fact, there's been people who do ask for ridiculous are. They're like, "I want a 50% increase." And all I ever say is, "Let me get back to you." <laughs> and then I take that back over to HR because think about all the levels at that point you've gone through for me to make an offer for you. And that's, oh, yeah, the, that's, piece, that's the part, especially folks that haven't been in a hiring manager role. Yes. And to be fair, I never was either. I was on hiring panels, I was in, but I've never been in a hiring manager role until recently. I have to interview 10, 15. Well, first of all, I'm going through hundreds and I don't even know what HR goes through. So they, they send me the triage amount. So let's say 100 people apply. They triage that and they say, okay, half of these 50 are qualified. Now I have to go through 50 resumes. I get that down to 20 or 25. I rank or do whatever matrix that I'm in. So I want to bring in the first 10. I might not even be done. I just want to cycle through the first 10. Scheduling, weeks, months, time. There's a lot of, it's soft. It's not like there's a hard dollar cost that's charging, but there's a soft cost to all that hours and time that goes in. I finally narrow it down. I get this one- top tier individual I want and I'm going to rescind it because they asked for 10% more? That would be insane. That would be dumb on my part. It's just it's just not going to happen. So feel validated in the worth that you bring to the table. And even if you weren't, like Rich said, let's say you did just find it on LinkedIn. Or indeed, if I did make that offer to you, I see value in you and here is an an amount and I likely have 10, 15 or 20% more (laughs) that I could offer you anyway. So know your value and worth and feel comfortable in it. And I think, you know, to bring this all back to, I just try to make analogies that people can relate to. It is like dating. The worst that can happen is I'm like, hey, can I get your number? Like, And I'm literally offering you a number. It's (laughs) 50,000. The worst you can say is no. And if you say no, um, you know, I really you didn't really try very hard. Um, you know, I've, I got other guys out here trying to get my number and they're offering fifty five thousand. I'm like, oh, I didn't mean to offend. <laughs> I can come back with this number. You know, let me court a little bit more. Like be respectful of the courtship, the dance, because it, that's really all it is. You're definitely not going to offend me because, as you said, Pete, I'm I'm unobjective. It's not like me. Marcus Garrett is writing you a check. I'm not taking out my checkbook or debit card and saying, oh, man, this is going to cost me $50,000. It's just the amount HR has told me that I can go with. And there's probably, like I said, a wiggle room. And in fact, if there wasn't, I usually say this is a firm number. Because every now and then you'll get somebody who's at the top of your budget, as you mentioned. But if I do that, I'm going to tell you up front, hey, here's the amount. And this is firm. Like this is non-negotiable. And I might find some other incentives to still bring you in. But if you don't hear this is firm, negotiate.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. Like you need to have a signal not to ask. Your default should be asking. The worst fears are imaginary and the odds are tremendous and the sums really add up. It's a bulletproof case. I mean, I'm sold. I just, I kind of want to get an offer somewhere so I can ask. I'm so fired up about it, but you know, Hey, I guess uh, I'm my own boss. So I have to ask me, say, Pete, can I get a, can I get a 30% raise next year? I've been doing great. The podcast has really been growing. It's like, all right, Pete. It'd be funny. It'd be funny if you had to turn yourself down. Like, nah, I rescinded. So, sorry, Pete. That's firm. That's firm. <laughs> Well, tell me, you know, Rich Marcus, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Yes. I'm glad you gave me that segue because we're going
2: to have to shift gears to something much happier after this. And so I think the 55 to 50,000, you earned a, you just made yourself another half million dollars over the course of your career. Congratulations. You know, congratulations, success and hand claps. I'd clap, but I don't want to mess the mic up. Mm-hmm. But one other thing to keep in mind is they, and it's actually the same study. This is two different articles that I'm referencing, is they found that your wages, for the most part, stagnate for 90% of people. So most part isn't like half. It's not 51%. It's 90% of people stagnate at age 45. Now, depending Hmm. where you are on that scale, you might be like, oh, that's forever away. To me, I'm like, oh, that's right around the corner. (laughs) Because I have a whole different perspective on like a 10 year time frame now. And I'm going to break down why that's so crazy. I didn't realize when I first read it. Okay, I'm like, okay, that's 15 years, 10 years, whatever the math may be as far as exennials and millennials go. But that means at age 45, let's say that you're the average worker, you have a 50 year career, you start around 21. Now, I started working at 16, but you know, whatever. Let's Mm -hmm. say you have the luxury of starting around 21, you're going to retire at 67. So that's 46 years. Roughly a 50-year career. If you hit your max salary at age 45 and you stagnate, in fact, they found that most people decline at this time, Mm. you're only halfway through your career arc. So for the next 22 years of work, you're making less money every year. Ouch. When adjusting for inflation. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And that's why this... It is important to know your value in the market because if you stay in that company where now you're not getting those raises and now you're stagnating and technically you're making about fifty years, 50% less every time that you don't go out into the market after that two-year mark... And, you know, Pete, you actually had an interesting comment. You were joking, but there was a CEO, I forget his name, uh, but I saw it in, you know, one of those upworthy trends or threads or articles where I only read the headline. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. Then I moved on. But he said that he encourages his own workers to go out and apply approximately every two years Because he wants them to remain hungry and know they are valued and know they are being appropriately paid in his organization. So he was so confident that he is compensating his employees well. And another something to keep in mind is we're talking a lot about compensation. We're talking a lot about salary. That's not the end all be all. But I have bills, taxes and things that I need to cover. So it accounts for something. That's not the end of the discussion. But you also want to keep in mind, are you being paid fairly And then balance that with how much do I enjoy my job, my environment, my coworkers, my employees, and what's valuable and important to me. Because you can either be paid poorly at a job you dislike, (laughs) ideally you're paid well at a job you love, or you are paid well at a job you tolerate. But to be paid worse and decline every year at a job you don't like, that's just not a winning
0: scenario for anyone. Uh -uh. Agreed. Oh, that's so good. No, it's a terrible situation to be in. But a great point (laughs) that you made. Well, so now can I hear a little bit about a favorite quote?
1: Something you two find inspiring. You know, for me, the quote it's super simple. I don't even know if I would call it inspiring per se, but it's this too shall pass. It's something that we hear people say all the time. And I've never been in a work situation where I've made a mistake and in the moment it may have felt like it was the end of the world the ceo heard about it someone else heard about it my manager heard about it or if i am the manager i gave my my team member some bad advice a bad way to handle the situation and it didn't pass it it may have sucked in the moment but eventually there was something i learned from it that you know made me stronger and allowed me to be more effective in the future so I wouldn't call it motivational per se, but when things are hitting the fan and I feel like I'm in a situation where I'm like, oh, this is a stressful day, hour, week, this person's getting on my nerves, this presentation didn't go as well as I thought, it's just a blip in time. And so I just encourage people to remember that, that like whatever it is that's happening, even most times in your personal life, of course, there's going to be things that they don't just pass right away or maybe they're around forever. But I've just found that every situation that I've been in, regardless of how negative it may seem in the moment, there's been an insight that I've been able to glean from it. And looking back, it was something that was just a blip on the radar of life.
0: hmm.
2: I'd say for me, and I hate to be cliche, but it's I'm reading uh, From Good to Great right now by Jim Collins. Um, it's not because I'm smart or some great person. I actually had to do it because of work. So <laughs> it was like a work assignment. But that being said, I think it's like the opening quote. And I was trying to Google it, but Rich finished too soon. So I wasn't gonna, I'm going to paraphrase it, but also butcher it. So please be gentle and also look it up later to get it right. But it was something to the effect of the enemy of great is not bad, it's mediocrity. And what I took from that is most of us have the capacity for being great. And you had a guest on your show recently that was talking about, and it was, it was helpful for me, that some people believe growth is finite, like mm-hmm. you are what you are when you're what you're born with. And others believe growth is unlimited and you can learn, you continue to learn until your last breath is given, I think was this quote. And Both of those were better and helpful for me because I think a lot of us are like, well, it's good enough. And you can even be made to feel guilty for when you try to achieve more than that. When people are like, oh, well, you know, keep in mind that this is going wrong over here and over there. I'm like, yeah, but it's going wrong here now, me at this exact moment. So... I am sympathetic and I am empathetic, but that is not dismissive of the role, struggle, situation or obstacle that I'm facing. And I feel like a lot of us feel that we can't either speak to that or we can't address it because it's like, Oh, it's good enough. And I'm like, well, it's also not great and maybe it could be better. And mm-hmm. I, it took me a long time to make peace with and feel comfortable with, well, I don't want to just do good. There's greatness out there. Uh, I don't think I'm great in all things, but I've, and I think we all have felt what greatness feels like in something that we succeeded in. And it is a whole different feeling from, ah, I did good today. Like you can rest easy with, ah, I did good today, but that's a different feeling. Like today was a great day Mm. and I want more. And as fact as many great days in my life as possible. Good is good, but great is better.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. And how about uh, favorite books for you two?
1: I think for me, one thing I've, and this has been especially important as I moved into more of a manager role, The The One Thing by Gary Keller. Oh yeah. And really it's just helping you get to what's the one thing you can do that's going to help you be most effective and it's going to make all those other things easier. And so as an individual contributor, that could be you're working on six different projects. What's the one way I can do this that will allow me to knock out multiple projects at once or finish three of these fast so I can get to this other thing that that's maybe not as as valuable? Or as a manager, what's maybe the one thing I can do to structure my team in such a way that it's that it's operating at the most efficient level possible? So that's been uh, super helpful to me. Uh, I'm going to give you two. And because mm-hmm. I'm also uh, an introvert, Quiet, The Power of Introverts by Susan Kane uh, that's been one of the most impactful reads that I've had uh, o- over the past couple of years. And specifically as it relates to being an introvert, it's helped me focus uh, a lot more on my strengths and realize that some of the things that I thought were weaknesses were really just differences, especially given that we work in a very... Uh, extrovert centric society in the Western world where it's all about who can be the loudest and and who can yell the most about their accomplishments and who can make the most connections that there were things that I previously thought about myself. Where I was like, I'm not good at this. So this is a weakness. What's wrong with me? And I'm like, yo, those were just differences. And this book really helped me uh, realize that. Uh-huh. Beautiful. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I'd say for me, I don't know yet because I'm still working through this. So I guess I got a twofold response as well. So we actually started a uh, 10 pages a day challenge where it actually a guest came on our show, Lisa Nicole Bell uh, on episode 26. And she said that you can finish most great books just by math with 30 days in a month and reading 10 pages a day. That's 300 pages. So you can finish most great books in a month. I honestly didn't believe her or I took it as a challenge, challenge accepted. I'm not really sure why, but I was like, I'm going to test that out, man. I don't think that makes sense. And it was basic math. And she was right. I read like four books after that show. And I started com slash books. So right now it is looking like this good to great book is going to be one of my favorite reads thus far. And along those lines of it would be nice with infinite time to read all the books, but I'm not trying to read all the books. I went out and I looked at a uh, all the great list. I looked at personal finance, professional de- development specifically, because you know, obviously that's the lane that we are in for the show. And I felt something I've talked about on the show is complementary interest. And it took me a long time. I used to have competing interests, so I'd be like, uh, I'd be like a cat chasing after a laser pointer. I'm like, oh, that's you know, that's shiny. Oh, that's cool. And I, I never seem to get anything done. I get 10 percent of everything done. And going back to that quote, I was mediocre at a lot of things and great at nothing. I was, as I said on the show, I was a jackass of (laughs) of all trades. I wasn't particularly great at anything. So I've become more focused over time. And I think this book is going to be it for me. But if not, I have 14 personal finance and 15 professional development books that I'm going to read through right now. So good to great would be my current recommendation subject to change.
0: Oh, that's so cool. Nice lineup there. Keep you busy. Yeah. Yeah. Marcus, Rich, tell me, do you have a final parting word, a challenge, a call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: Yeah. I think, and it's easier said than done, but I would say comfortable in self. And I wanted to say confidence, but that didn't seem like grandiose enough. But it took me probably recently. And I feel like it'll be a continuous journey. But at some point I crossed over that hill where I was pushing the rock up the mountain where like, I'm unsure. I think I know things. I don't, I'm uncomfortable considering myself an expert. Uh, I'm getting these validations externally, but I didn't see it in myself. And I, had and I finally did, and I don't know when that breaking point was. It wasn't like I just woke up one day and like, man, you're great, you're awesome, like, <laughs> you know, and people and people like me. It wasn't like I was talking to myself in the mirror, but one day I'm like, huh, maybe I do know what I'm talking about, and I have something that I can give back to people, and whatever that is for you in the listening audience, I think the quicker that you can come to grips and peace with that. I just felt like it opened up a whole new door for me. And it just feels like it wouldn't even feel like the sky's the limit. It feels like the uh, floor is the sky. Mm.
1: That's awesome. I like that. I like that, good brother. <clears throat> Thank you, sir. Uh, so I, I think for myself, uh, or or I guess what I would recommend to people who are currently working is getting clear on expectations and this is something that I've thought a lot more about since becoming a manager and how I can be a more effective manager and even some of the things that I did when I was in more of an individual contributor position. I find that a lot of people don't take the don't really take the time to get clear with their manager, or their supervisor about what's expected of them, what's a good job, what's a great job, and even expectations around. The person working on the right things are you spending your time on the work on the right type of projects that are going to help you get to wherever it is you want to go in your career and especially with it being uh, or starting to be performance review season at a lot of places and we have this coming up i believe on episode 68 we talk about this but with it being performance review season it's a great time to think about expectations and if you haven't had that conversation with your manager in a while it's a great time to think, what are the things that you want to accomplish? What are the things that they can help you do to get there? And they may be able to suggest some of those things based off of where you say you want to go. And it's kind of thinking of it in terms of mutual expectations. So there's what's expected of you, but also what are you expecting of your managers so that you can do the most effective job possible?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so much good stuff. Rich, Marcus, this has been a whole lot of fun. Some flashbacks to podcast movement chicken waffle, fun times, (laughs) partaking activities. It was good to (laughs) reconnect with you uh, in front of thousands of folks. And I hope uh, you and the show, Paychecks and Balances, just continue to grow and flourish and be a lot of fun for you and everyone checking it out.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. I forgot to do this in the beginning. uh, And I think Rich did as well, because it's normally my line. So follow us on the social medias, At Pay Balance is the show account. Personal accounts are at I am Richard Jones. And you can find me at the Marcus Gary one T on Twitter, two T's on Instagram.
1: And I'm happy to be here. Also great. uh, Catching up, having some chicken waffles, (laughs) activities uh, and looking forward to seeing you, whatever the next thing is, man.
2: Uh, may I jump in real quick
1: for you? I feel
2: like we should explain the inside joke. So if at any opportunity you have an op in uh, California to, I'm going to only hit on the high notes, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Roscoe's chicken and waffles in which I was able to enjoy the delicious chicken and waffles with these intelligent young men and start this conversation. And that's another thing that we didn't talk about. I'm not going to rabbit hole here, but, uh, networking, continuing to, uh, make those important contacts and you can
0: be awesome at your job. (laughs) Are on the show to talk about it as well. Word. Well, isn't that fascinating how just about nobody asks, but there's just about always potential to have a small bump in the pay if you make that request, because there's budget, there's room, and it's not personal. And so I think that could be game-changing, transformational right there, just to always ask for that modest bump and to see what happens. Let us know. I'd love to hear some success stories flowing from this. So that's pete at dot awesome at com. Email me anytime. And again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we refer to here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep222. And I hope you'll please subscribe so you'll hear from our next guest. It is Annie McKee. And Annie is talking about how to be happy at work.